Good. Well, this is uh, what we've been doing over the last two weeks. Um, ethics, broadly speaking, the way people talk about it around us is, is trying to answer this question, how, then, how should we then live? How should we then live? And, uh, of course, the answer you're going to give to that is going to be very strongly based on where you start from. But from a Christian point of view, uh, we're thinking about starting from, uh, from God and the Gospel, which is what we talked about in the first week. And uh, especially uh, starting from a point of view of... Uh, sitting under God's mercy. So ethics is wisdom made possible by the mercies of God, functions only in living relationship to him, and it's the process of discerning what is good, acceptable and perfect according to his will. And uh, we've talked a little bit about the motivation behind that as well, and we're going to see more of that this week, about the motivation behind um, doing things that spread the glory of God in some sense. Uh, we also said something about the practice of ethics, of Christian ethics. It's done by those set apart by God's mercy for the praise of his glory. That's that emphasis on uh, bringing uh, glory to God, which we'll see again this week. Under the instruction of the scriptures, and we talked about that a lot last time, and uh, some of the difficulties involved in that and the carefulness we have to uh, display when we read the scriptures ethically. And it's applied to what we do, and it's applied to what we say about the world. So it's going to, it should be affecting our, our personal behaviour, and it should be affecting the way we witness and talk about other things that are going on around us. So it should be doing both of those things. And uh, both of us, hopefully, steeped in um, grace and uh, mercy. Now, as we, what we, so we're in week, um, week three, and... Uh, Finally, we're going to start tackling some, some issues, some, some real issues. Well, we touched on one last time, but we're going to really tackle one this time. And uh, all of the issues we're going to tackle over the next four sessions, including this one, are pretty contentious issues. You know, they're, they're difficult issues. They're hot topics, if you like, in culture. And even within the, the Christian community, and you'll find um, professing Christians taking different, different views on some of these things. So we get, that's going to require a, d- a degree of uh, caution as we, um, as we approach these things and a, uh, certainly a degree of humility. And I think I raised this in the, in the first session. One of the battles that we're going to find going on in our own minds is this battle that goes on between our, uh, our inner Pharisee on the one hand and our inner liberal on the other. And that these two doing battle when it comes to the, comes to the issue and very often, uh, Christian tradition will be uh, egging on our uh, inner Pharisee, and uh, the culture around us will be egging on our inner liberal, and so the battle can get very uh, ferocious. Our inner Pharisee is always going to want to make um, uh, to make much of small, visible, easily followed laws and magnify them into something big. Um, and what that allows us to do as, as sinful and proud people is it allows us to uh, say, uh, give the appearance of obedience in certain areas while passing judgments on others. Okay, so our enterprise is always going to want to do that um, with, with, uh, with Christian ethics. So, uh, so we're going to be looking at homosexuality and homosexual practice uh, later on. Um, if you've never experienced same-sex attraction, it's quite easy in some ways not to be, not to, in, not to indulge in homosexual 
activity because you don't really want to. Okay, that then makes it very easy to say that you're obedient in that area, and to be very judgmental about judgmental about those who suffer in that area. Okay, so this is going to so our inner Pharisee will be at work um, in this area. But our inner liberal is going to be at work as, as well. Our inner liberal is going to, to make laws that are quite general in the scriptures, big laws if you like, but make them smaller. So it's the reverse thing. In fact, being a Pharisee is making, taking small laws and making them big. The inner liberal is going to take big laws and make them small and find all sorts of exceptions so that we can revise ethics and uh, put lots and lots of qualifications on things uh, to make certain behaviour acceptable uh, when really it shouldn't be. Okay, so those two, two four, and that's what the culture around us is doing all the time. Uh, so these two, two are going to be battling on, uh, battling inside us. Uh, so we faced this um, recently. Um, it was interesting. I, I was booking a, a night in a B&B, which we're going to uh, next week, in fact, and um, got a reply back from the B&B saying, uh, I noticed at the bottom of your email that uh, you're involved in a, a Bible training course. I thought you might like to know that uh, um, I and my partner are in a homosexual relationship and we run this B&B uh, together on that basis. Um, you might not feel comfortable about that, so do cancel your booking if you'd like to. Okay, and that was the end of the, the, end of the email. Um, so I, I have to say, I found this very, very difficult to know how to, uh, what, both what to do and both what to say in response to this. Um, and it was very much the inner Pharisee and even liberal uh, battling out um, in my mind. Uh, you can ask me what we did later. Um, yeah. But it's not about, I hope we're going to see tonight, it's not about trying to find a balance between these two things, which you might think is the Anglican way. But look where that's got us. <laughs> It's not about finding a balance between these things. It's much more about not listening to either of them, really. Um, not listening to the inner Pharisee, because that's a distortion. Not listening to the inner liberal, that's another distortion. Uh, just trying to listen to the Spirit within us. Um, and the Spirit, as he speaks through the Scriptures, that's our aim anyway. We just need to be aware that we can be thrown off track in either direction as we try and do that. Um, yes, yeah, so when it comes to homosexuality, the, the inner Pharisee is going to possibly result in a lack of compassion, as we uh, expressed as hatred or judgmentalism. And the inner liberal but is also going to result in a lack of compassion in a slightly different way, because it's, it's a, a sort of careless uh, attitude towards behaviour. If, if certain behaviour is actually dangerous or dangerous to people's relationship with God and we're not warning them then that is also a lack of compassion we need to um, remember that too good now um, what we're going to do tonight is this is we're going to divide it roughly into two um, as we have been and in the first session we're going to be looking at primarily at Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and then we're going to do some group work based on that and then we're going to focus down on the issue of homosexuality as, a, as, as the first main topic uh, that we're going to cover. Uh, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, I was saying last time, is foundational and fundamental to a whole host of different ethical issues. And from it we get this, this principle of the, the order of creation. Ethics would be very 
difficult thing to do, if not an impossible thing to do, if there wasn't uh, a sort of regular order to creation, uh, because ethics involves sort of thinking about how patterns of things work in different situations. But if you don't have a stable creation behind that in the first place, then it's going to be a very difficult thing to do. So Genesis um, chapters 1 and 2 are foundational anyway, but they're particularly important for a, for a number of issues, homosexuality being one of them, uh, but for other issues as well, um, like uh, male-female roles within marriage, uh, and ministry, and uh, the whole issue of marriage and divorce and remarriage. So this first session, which is what we're going to tackle in the next, se- the next session, we're going to come back to divorce and remarriage because it's such a, a big and important issue. Uh, so this will be foundational for, for that as well. So Genesis uh, chapters uh, 1 and 2, which I'd like to ask you to find in your um, Bibles. One of the dangers with these chapters is that uh, you can take a slightly piecemeal approach to studying them and sometimes, well, very frequently, verses are taken out of context and we, d- we don't really get the big picture of actually what, what, is, God, what is God doing? Yeah, what is, what is, what's the plan? What's the, the purpose of creation? That's a huge question, of course, but I think we can discern... Uh, in many ways, both here and elsewhere in the scriptures, strongly implied anyway, that the purpose of creation is to um, is, is, a, is an outpouring, an out, overflowing of God's glory and generosity. You know, it's an expression of His character, overflowing in generosity, spreading His glory. Um, and what we're going to see in Genesis one and two is uh, the role of humanity in that pro- process of spreading and uh, magnifying uh, the glory of God. And this will help us to understand all sorts of things, I think. Uh, we're going to see that in two parts. We're going to see the, uh, the basic plan to, to fill the earth with the, with the image of God, uh, which is Genesis in Genesis chapter 1. And then um, in, the, um, in the other account that we get in Genesis chapter 2, we get a slightly different perspective on it, uh, a different perspective that, that shows... Uh, some more detail, more precision really on the, on the, on the male-female relationship and how that works in spreading uh, the glory of God in the world. And this is going to be foundational to a lot of the ethics that we're going to talk about. We might not expect it to because it's all descriptive, isn't it? It's actually narrative. You wouldn't normally expect narrative to have a huge amount of ethical kind of implication, but it does and we'll find that biblical writers drawing on these chapters very heavily. So Genesis 1 to 2, um, filling the earth with blessing or filling the earth with God's glory. Now, okay, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. Uh, we're, in the, we're on the sixth day. Uh, let me read that to you. This is from the NIV. Uh, then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. 
in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Okay. So why did God create the earth? For an outpouring or overflowing of his glory to bring him that glory, which is it's a good thing because of his uh, great character. And uh, you can see how that works here. It basically works by him creating image bearers. So he creates image bearers and then he appoints them to multiply and to spread. So verse 28, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. So we've got the image of God multiplying then over the face of the earth. And uh, as they're doing so, uh, they're, given, um, they're given dominion over the rest of creation. So, they, so much as God has dominion over creation as a whole, uh, there's a delegated dominion over um, the livestock, the earth, of the creatures that move over the, over the ground. So the loving care that's, that God displays over the creation as a whole is then displayed by his image bearers over you know, smaller aspects of the creation or something like that. So that, again, is displaying his character, um, spreading his glory. So that's roughly how the pattern works um, in Genesis chapter 1. Now, in Genesis chapter 2, we get a different perspective on that. Um, I don't know if you've done much work on how the relationship between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. It, it's, pretty, it's, it's kind of similar to, you, you, in other parts of scripture, you get, you'll get um, a narrative, say, uh, let's think about uh, the crossing of the Red Sea, um, narrative, and Moses taking the people across the Red Sea, and then you'll get a song, you'll get Moses' song, which tells you the same story, but in a song form. Um, and the relationship between Genesis 1 and 2 is a little bit like that. So Genesis chapter 1 isn't quite a song, but it's a little bit like a song. And then Genesis chapter 2 is much more sort of straight narrative. But the two work together, two sort of different perspectives, really, on the, on the same kind of creation event. So Genesis chapter 2, uh, we've got much more on the role of the, the relationship, the partnership, between um, the man and the woman. Um, So let me read uh, 15 through to 25. So the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you mustn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it you will surely die. The Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone, I'll make a helper suitable for him. Um, or literally that's um, I will make a helper like but opposite him now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air he brought them to the man to see what he would name them whatever the man called each living creature that was his name so the man gave names to all the livestock birds of the air and all the beasts of the field but for Adam no suitable helper was found so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep and while he was sleeping he took one of the man's ribs closed up the place of flesh and the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man 
And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she will be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So here we've got another way of thinking about pretty much the, the same kind of, of the same kind of, of process. Uh, we've got uh, uh, the man given uh, work to do, a task to do. That's in verse uh, 15. He's put in the garden to work it and to take care of it. Sort of echoes what we saw back in chapter one. Uh, but then we've got uh, the fact that the man is not able to do this on his own. You know, that is not sufficient to actually do the task of uh, spreading God's glory in the world and doing this work um, that he's been given to do. Uh, so he is given uh, a helper. So verse 18 being very important here. It's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him, like him, but different from him. Um, nonetheless, there is an order. The man is created first and then the woman is uh, created secondarily. Uh, but it's important to recognise that the man can't do the task that he's been given on his own. He does need help. So there's an ordered partnership going on and that is, partnership is then expressed in sexual union. Uh, man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife and become one flesh. And broadly speaking, you might say that the man in this um, instance has got um, responsibilities that would have been similar in the ancient, ancient world to, to those of the firstborn in a, in a family. Um, so he's first created, yeah, uh, it's similar to the kind of responsibilities the firstborn within a family would have. Um, hence, he's the one who's given the command back in verses 16 and 17. Um, he's given the responsibility implicitly for passing that on uh, to the woman and he is the one who is called when things go wrong he is the one who is called uh, first so chapter 3 verse 9 uh, when things do go wrong uh, chapter 3 verse 9 but the Lord God called to the man where are you? okay he's called first so it's um, it's a partnership but it's, um, it's an ordered partnership. It works. It fun- seems to function in a certain way. Now we'll come back to what the later biblical books make of all of that um, shortly. Now for the moment it's just worth um, standing back a bit and trying to think about what, what these chapters are doing in the, in the context of Genesis as a whole. Um, and it seems to go like this. So, you know, why are these, why are these, what are these chapters doing here? How do they fit into the context of Genesis as a whole? Well, very often they're kind of cut off or divorced from the rest of Genesis, but it seems to work something like this. What they're doing is they're showing us, if you like, the intention and purpose and trajectory that God has had from the beginning, which is to fill the earth with the image and uh, glory of God. Okay? It's setting up, uh, and setting up in a sense, how that's going to happen, uh, and humanity's role in that, and, and the male-female partnership um, in that, which then sets the stage for the crisis of sin, 
which in the great story of things means that instead of being filled with the image and glory of God and, and blessing the earth becomes filled with curse and death so the next big chunk of the book of, Ex- of, of Genesis is all about death spreading and uh, wickedness spreading in all sorts of different ways and that then sets the background for the restoration or at least the promise of restoration from chapter 12 which is the promise of the, the uh, initial trajectory of God's blessing and glory restored uh, the promise to fill the earth with blessing that goes to, to Abraham um, so uh, blessing Abraham uh, the nation that comes from Abraham and then all the peoples of the world so um, in the context of Genesis that's why these, chap- that's why these cha- chapters are here you know, that's, the, that's the purpose they're showing and uh, it is as I was saying it's narrative it's descriptive there's no direct or explicit instruction about, about ethical issues or, eth- or all sorts of behaviours in chapters 1 and 2. Nonetheless, uh, the biblical writers draw many ethical impl- implications from these chapters. Um, that's true right across the scriptures. Um, I suppose it's not surprising really in that, um, you know, in that uh, redemption and how the people of God are to behave and live is supposed to be part of that restored trajectory so it's, we're expected to kind of in some ways line up with what was happening in Genesis uh, 1 and 2 uh, but nonetheless uh, it's not explicit instruction uh, it's drawing out some um, implications it's very interesting to see how the biblical writers do that so what I'm going to do now is just show you a few instances of where uh, both Jesus and Paul do that in the, in the New Testament uh, writer, writings. Uh, we're not going to go into them in detail now. I just really want to show you that they are doing this and uh, roughly um, what they're doing as they're doing, doing it. Now, some of it we'll come back to later um, when we look at things in a bit more detail. Um, but for the first example is from Matthew Uh, chapter 19 so if you could uh, find Matthew chapter 19 in your Bibles now this is a a dispute um, with the Pharisees about uh, divorce and the reasons uh, for divorce and whether divorce can happen for any and every reason verse 3 but the interesting thing is the way that Jesus then uh, refers back to uh, Genesis 1 and 2 so chapter 19 verse 4 haven't you read he replied that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh so they are no longer two but one Therefore, what God has separated together, what God has joined together, let man not separate. So that's one quote from Genesis chapter 1, and that's one quote from Genesis chapter 2, both of those two things together. And that then becomes, if you like, the ethical foundations for talking about about, um, divorce and what situations uh, divorce might happen. And in particular, making making the point that marriage is intended to be uh, lifelong and monogamous 
Um, one of the interesting things about Jesus' teaching here is that so far as Jesus was concerned, those verses, those chapters of Genesis were evidence on their own against the practice of polygamy. Uh, you might have heard it said uh, sometimes that there's no um, direct instruction against polygamy in the Bible. Well, it seems that Jesus thought there was, or at least thought it was strongly implied by Genesis 1 and 2. Now, the reason I say that um, Jesus uh, thinks that that is saying that that means is speaking those Genesis verses are speaking against polygamy is that if um, polygamy were acceptable, uh, there wouldn't be a problem for a man to divorce um, to divorce inappropriately and then marry someone else if polygamy was okay. But he goes on to say that's not okay you divorce inappropriately and remarry someone else then there's a problem there's an adultery problem okay, so, uh, which would have been fine if, if polygamy was fine um, so it is teaching against polygamy so in other words it's in, what's interesting here is that Jesus is using this very descriptive passages in Genesis 1 and 2 and making quite fine ethical points on certain, on certain issues uh, based on Genesis uh, 1 and 2. Okay, uh, chapter 19, sorry, I should spell it out a bit closer. It's not really what we're talking about tonight, but anyway. Uh, chapter 19, verse 9, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits um, adultery and oh, I should probably should have said as well and then in Luke's version he also says and causes her to commit adultery too okay now if polygamy was acceptable that wouldn't be the case you know even if, if you an inappropriate you might um, so in the second marriage it's, it's the issue of the second marriage causing adultery if there was polygamy acceptable, you can marry as many people as you as you like. Yeah, without there being a problem. But if there's no polygamy, then um, there's no problem. Yeah, does it make sense? Yeah. Okay. Anyway, I'm sure it does. <laughs> <laughs> Next example uh, is one Corinthians. Like I said, it's, it's a shame. Really, we're not going to have time to look at these in full detail 1 Corinthians 11 uh, verses 2 to 16 um, this is the issue about whether you wear one of these things if in Corinth whether the wives wear one of these veils this is a Roman wife actually a 2nd century Roman wife it's not what you can tell really um, should they or not Paul says, yes, they should. And uh, the reason he gives is a reason taken from Genesis uh, chapter 2. Um, so verse 7, a man ought not to cover his head. He's the image and glory of God. The woman is the glory of man. A man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Okay. Now, there's an awful lot we could say about these verses. 
and uh, slightly puzzling nature of Paul's argument and the uh, very particular cultural context that he's speaking into. But the main point to say is he is arguing from Genesis uh, chapter 2 and the pattern and order of creation. And you can see even in those verses that emphasis on God's glory. You know, things are set up in a certain way for God's glory. Um, We could say more about that, but perhaps not now. Um, Ephesians chapter 5, there's not quite, uh, maybe we won't look, unless anyone wants to ask about it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's jump ahead of it, but um, that's fine. Um, uh, so this is thinking ahead to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2 and the argument you might apply there as well. Um, the argument doesn't follow through in quite the same way anymore because um, this particular veil that they wore in, in the Greco-Roman world doesn't mean the same thing today. So if you wore one of these in church today, it wouldn't say the same thing it wouldn't uh, communicate the same thing so in that context this is rather like wearing a wedding ring Yeah, think of it that way Um, women at the time were so to speak taking off their wedding rings because they're slightly fed up with their um, husbands for good reasons mostly and um, uh, wanted to assert themselves within the marriage relationship or in in, in some ways to distance themselves from their husbands. So that's why that was going on culturally at the time. And Paul is effectively saying, no, put your wedding ring back on again. Um, It's inappropriate for you to damage the order of your relationship with your husband in that way. Um, when we then go to 1 Timothy chapter 2, we've got to go through this, the same sort of thought process and think about, does this mean the same thing now as it did back then? So, and it, yeah, but it's, it's, you know, it's going, through that, going through that process. Is there any Well, the, the long hair thing, apparently... Why is this? Yes. Um... It was considered shameful for men to have long hair at the time because that's the way that the Greco-Roman culture used to uh, portray barbarians. So if you want to insult a barbarian, useful tip for later, in the 1st or 2nd century world, you'd you'd draw a picture of them or or make a statue of them with long hair because it makes them kind of look effeminate. Um, so that's why Paul says, um, dun, 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 dun. where is it? Yeah, the very nature of things teach you that a man has long hair is a disgrace to him. Okay, so it was a disgrace or a shame to have long hair. Um, so that you, you could make a case that, again, that was a, that was a culturally conditioned signal or symbol. Good. Very easy stuff, isn't it? 
Right, um, Ephesians 5, well perhaps we won't look at the Ephesians 5 one because there's no explicit quote or allusion, although the principle is very similar in that um, marriage in Ephesians 5 is displaying something about the character of God and displaying something about um, God's relationship with his people or Christ's relationship with his church. Um, again, that's going to, that displaying or glorification of God is uh, what marriage is all about. And then uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, which we've just mentioned, but just to look at it uh, very briefly. Um, 1 Timothy 2, uh, verses 13 and 14 refer back um, to Genesis 1 to 3. Um, so from verse 11, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over man. She must be silent uh, or quiet. Uh, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. And uh, that is referring back to Genesis 1 to 3. And particularly the, the order of teaching responsibility that's given to Adam first. You might remember that from, from Genesis chapter 2 that Adam is given... Is, is explicitly given the command not to eat from the tree. It's then his responsibility to teach that to Eve. And when things go wrong in chapter 3, that order, proper order is um, reversed in that she implicitly teaches Adam to take the fruit and the proper order is reversed. And that she takes an inappropriate authority over Adam. So that was a consequence of her of her deception. So that seems to be what Paul is talking about. Um, and again, that um, then has implications for the way that men and women interact within the church family um, in Ephesus at the time. And we don't have the time now to kind of work that through, whether there is a, um, to think about the cultural differences between Ephesus in the first century and today. But you know, if, you, if we had time, we'd have to go through that, do that hard work of trying to see how the, how the two compare. Um, yeah, good, so that was Ephesians. Well, that's the Ephesians one. Um, yeah, marriage a bit like a dance partners. Yeah, and that it's the partnership working together. Um, um, so there is leading involved and responsibility involved but it's the partnership together that actually does the work if you like in bringing God's glory um, and in many ways the, the man within the relationship is going to be wanting to display his wife more than he's going to be wanting to display himself you know, it's that kind of idea so dance partners is quite a good way of thinking about Ephesians 5 that's a picture of um, Catherine and myself a few years ago <laughs> um, many many years ago and um, that's a picture that's, yes that's not how it is now um, <laughs> I think that was what it was like in a dream once, maybe this is what it's like in some nightmare anyway good I think it's time for some group work um, thinking about all these issues about the order, the order of creation in Ch- Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and what marriage partnerships are supposed to be about in terms of spreading the glory and image of God and uh, thinking about a film like this one this is Four Weddings and a, and a Funeral um, I don't know has everyone seen this? I don't know whether they have or not perhaps not it's not necessary particularly to know 
the details of the plot um, apart from the fact that uh, you know, it, it does it's a slightly curious film in a way but it ends up kind of so the main characters in the end don't get married they just decide to cohabit at the end and um, the only relationship that's really functional within the whole film is the homosexual relationship um, anyway how would you talk about that with friends I suppose that's, that's the issue so, so if you're discussing this film with friends or family uh, what would you say in the light of Genesis 1 and 2 that's the project it's have five minutes maybe talking to two or three around you um, and we'll feed back in a moment So it's interesting in, in Matthew chapter 19, isn't it? Jesus clearly thinks these, these, these chapters in Genesis um, present um, a positive model of how marriage should be and how it should work. And so they should, these should be formative or foundational to anything we say about um, marriage or relationships, sexual relationships. Um, so we, we should be able to, to learn from them and uh, that should help us to speak into these kind of, kinds of situations. Um, what, would you, what would you say? Would there be things you might be able to agree on? Wedding is true. Wedding is true. Well, that's absolutely right, isn't it? Yeah, so uh, yeah, we're very much more about status and, um, and so forth. So the Yes, yes, that's yes, that's helpful. So it's somehow trying to say, well, what's the, what's the, what does God think is the the best model for, for marriage, okay, rather than our impression of what the best model for a relationship might be? Yeah, so that's. You could also agree that um, if there if there are some what um, whether exhibiting faithfulness and care for the most everything life for most in the end, you could agree to the extent that exhibiting faithfulness is the thing that happens most in the end. The exhibiting faithfulness to God and then that sort of shaping your relationships. Yes, yeah, so those are obviously good things, aren't they? So commitment, faithfulness are good things in themselves and love and care are obviously good things as well, so you can agree with all those things. 
So how would, what else would you need to say? So what's one way of saying that your, your faithfulness to, to God should then express itself in particular behaviour, I suppose? Is that what, how, you would, how you would get? I, I suppose, yeah, you did present it that way, that could be. To work in a certain way. Yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah. I would say something along the line, although I recognise that faithfulness and care are important, but actually if if you're if this person is suggesting that homosexual marriage was the same as heterosexual marriage, it implies gender blindness to marriage. And yeah. that misses quite a lot. And well I'm absolutely I'm, I'm I'm trying to look at it that way and say, well, does that matter? Yes, yes, that's right, that's right. Because Genesis 2 in particular seems to suggest that gender does matter. And uh, the, uh, it's the fact that the, the male-female partnership works in a particular way to, to spread the glory of God. Um, so inheriting the way that marriage functions for its purpose um, is this relationship between men and women. So, yeah. So in other words, what you're saying then, I suppose, is that yes, love, faithfulness, commitment are all good things, and you might even say that they're they're, they're necessary to the, the proper functioning of, of any kind of marriage relationship, um, but they're not sufficient. Uh, you you also so need other things to be in, in place for for the for the marriage to actually function according to God's purpose. Um, male-female love within male-female monogamous lifelong love sexually expressed would be the thing that would be missing uh, from that from that pattern how about um, the issue of cohabitation what might you say about that Yeah, so like it's like as Christians, like it's because you're like like because of what God has done to you, because mm. you're like a person who trusts in the Son of God in public, 
you're making a promise before him, I suppose. Yeah, no, yes, okay. So you have to phrase it in a certain way, doesn't it? So you have to try and get them to empathise with your point of view, which is, is you're your starting from the perspective that we live, that God exists and created the world in a certain way. So, you know, as a Christian, I believe that God exists and created the world in a, in a certain way. Therefore, I think dot, dot, dot about marriage, cohabitation, so forth. This is what follows from my basic beliefs about those things. Um, no, what the question is really asked is you need to identify what matters. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's right, that's right. So that's an interesting point of comparison to actually bring up, isn't it? You know, so what matters, presumably, um, outside a Christian context is, I don't know, the sort of maximal happiness of those involved or something like that. But a Christian perspective is, is, a, is a bigger thing that involves God's glory. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Um, any other comments before we move on? Um, um, sort of Focus down on this. situation for situation I'm sure because we've got wisdom on this as well um, but in those in those, those high tension hostile encounters it's probably, I, I think it's probably more important than, than ever to get in the stuff about the attractiveness of God's glory um, and also talking about personal humility as well so that's something you've got to really emphasise in that kind of situation is, the, is to 
deal with the accusation that you're being judgmental. You know, so talk, to talk about that very seriously as well. Um, rather than just defend a particular law or rule from the, from the scriptures, you've got to talk about the other things um, too, I think. Um, and it's that process, isn't it, of uh, because we believe this, it's just making sense of why we're saying something. Because I think um, to the outside world, um, uh, the Christian um, problem, if you like, with homosexuality is an irrational, fear-based response to something on a par with racism or something like that. Okay, so that's how it appears from the outside. So we've got to think of ways of um, challenging that, gently challenging that, and diffusing that that kind of in, that kind of impression. I guess what I just said has got a bit of a false premise. We've almost got an assumption that some bits of God's character are good and some are bad, and we're trying to hide the bad bits. But actually, it's all good. Every yeah, yeah. bit of God's character is good. Some of them will naturally be drawn to. Yeah. I guess the other one is just slightly, it's a different, we've got to think about it harder because yeah. they'll be very sort of challenged side is assumptions. Yes. Or, you know, things that are vaguely really deep into people. Yeah. So sometimes you've got to do that legwork to challenge that and say, and can you still see that God is good? Yes. Do you want homosexuality? Yeah. So like they're all these misunderstandings or. Yeah, 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 no, sure, sure, sure. I think that's the issue that I would find is that. One thing to say this is God's pattern, and it's another thing to say, and things that aren't in that pattern are wrong. So you can yeah. simply say, actually, this is the way God let people say that's absolutely fine. But what the problem is is why you can't say this is okay too, which just has to be a different pattern. Yes. And yeah. That, yeah. 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 That's right. So we're much happier saying the positive than not saying the negative. Um, but it also make the positive really clear. You've got to. Um, for me, it's, I mean, I can understand the, the positive nature of the pattern. What I don't get is why alternatives to it are in a moral category of wrong. Right, okay. As opposed to different to that. But then I'm, you know, I, in all sorts of ways, I might not be what I could be. I have certain things I'm good at, certain things I'm bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm morally wrong because I don't do certain things. I just yeah, don't do certain yeah, yeah. Things. Well, let's see if we can work that through with, the, with this particular issue, because I think we'll find that the... Because uh, the scriptures do give us both us the, um, the positive and the negative when it comes to homosexuality, and then we've got the, the positive pattern in Genesis 1 and 2, but then we have um, a whole lot of teaching about different patterns of relationship as well. Uh, so it, it might go. We'll come back to that, and uh, hopefully as we go through it, We'll see some of, a bit more clarity on that issue. Good. Um, let me speed up a bit. This is so. This is the second side of the handout now, and uh, this is basically the the kind of pattern that I uh, I want to set up for each of the issues that big issues that we're going to face. Um, I suppose it's like. Um, a tick sheet of, of things that you, you need to address before you can start thinking about a particular issue. So we've got the question. In this case, it's a question about how we should live. 
and how we should live in terms of sexual relationships and in particular should anyone ent- ever enter into a same-sex, a same-sex sexual relationship uh, what's the, if you like, the, the, the moral status of that before God we always want to begin from uh, the point of view of beginning with the gospel in other words we're addressing issues like this not from the standpoint of, the, the, of a judge uh, but from the standpoint of uh, fellow uh, sinners okay? because we're all sexual sinners in different ways uh, to different extents of course but nonetheless sexual sinners and if not um, extensive sexual sinners then that, 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 that will feed through into other, all sorts of other sins um, so we, all, we come to this issue saying there but for the grace of God go I uh, without any judgmentalism the starting point always being God's uh, mercy through the Lord Jesus Christ and our motivation from that point is then to further his glory in the light of his mercy okay, as we've been talking about over the last couple of sessions so that's always got to be our starting point not, in the, not with the judge's wig on but uh, as a fellow prisoner in the dock so to speak uh, we then need to think, uh, so that's a position of, hopefully that's a position of humility. And the, the position of humility should then lead us to want to see what the scriptures say. In other words, we're not deciding for ourselves just uh, on the basis of our, our own reasoning or intellect, although we'll bring that into it, not just on the basis of those things, um, what to think about these particular issues, but we're humbly listening to what God says through the, through the scriptures, listening to the, to the Spirit, as I was saying. Um, at the beginning do you want to list the relevant uh, scriptures so I've put a list of relevant scriptures it's not exhaustive but they're kind of key ones for this issue so we'll go through those in a moment um, but then I want to also think about these, these, these three uh, if you like what I call perspectives on what's going on I was saying in the first session that um, you can think about ethical behaviour and eth- the ethics of behaviour um, according to these three perspectives because when, when, when somebody does something it's, it's a person doing something in a given situation so there are people involved and there, there's character involved and there's action involved and there are rules that relate to those actions and the action done by these people by this person or people um, will then have consequences in certain situations. So all three of those things are going to be important when we're trying to assess what's going on um, ethically around a a certain issue. Uh, So we're trying to answer the question, should anyone ever enter into a same-sex sexual relationship? We want to think about um, the, the character implications of that, the rules that are associated with that, and the consequences that result from that. So all those three things are going to be brought into the into the picture and we'll find the scriptures that we look at address all three of those all three of those areas good now uh, some of these we've looked at already so we've already looked at Genesis uh, chapters 1 to 3 so we'll uh, look at that again we want to, so we've seen the positive pattern um, set up in Genesis 1 and 2 as we might expect so what, what happens then in the biblical story okay so we've got the promises to Abraham there's going to be a nation formed and um, 
it's gonna, there's going to be slavery in Egypt and then the Lord is going to take those people out of Egypt and form a new nation with them. He's going to be their God and uh, he will instruct them in that new relationship. So when that happens and they're taken out of Egypt and they're brought to Sinai and the law is given, uh, we would expect that law then to reflect in some way the initial trajectory of creation. Because what's going on here is a, a restoration of um, something was broken um, by the problem of sin. So we would expect the law that's given uh, to the people at that time to be reflective of the pattern that's there in Genesis uh, 1 and 2. So if you look at um, in the particular situation that the people found themselves in at the time. So if you look at Gen- uh, Leviticus um, chapter 18 this is one instance of that. And uh, right from the beginning of the chapter, you can see that it is this very much situation. It's all about being different uh, compared to the practices of the nations around them. So, chapter 18, verse 2. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan. Okay? You've been rescued from a sinful world. You are to be different. The trajectory under sin was there and the nations around you are, are infected by that but you are to be different because I am different uh, so you are, the big refrain in the book of Leviticus is you are to be holy because I am holy uh, which it continues uh, for Christians so that's a, a verse that, uh, one, that Peter quotes uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 16 be holy for I am holy so that idea continues so the particular regulations then we find in chapter 18 uh, give us explicitly what you shouldn't do given that there's this behaviour going on around you in the nations. Okay? This is not the right model for spreading God's glory. Doing these things will not do what marriage is supposed to do or what sexual relations are supposed to do. Um, in fact, they will spread, instead of spread, spreading the truth about God, they all spread lies about God. They'll spread slander about him, uh, which is why they're so serious. Um, and as we'll see, invo- invoke such serious penalties. So things like incest and adultery and bestiality, which are all covered in this chapter, are things that will not spread the glory of God. In fact, they'll spread lies about God. Um, and homosexuality is part of that. So chapter 18, verse 22. Um, It's pretty blunt. Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. Uh, That is detestable. Uh, This seems to be a practice that was very common in the nations around, but they are not to be like that. They are not to be like that. And then in chapter 20, what we get is the the punishments associated with each of these each of these things and chapter 20 verse 13 uh, you can see that it's a capital offence under the Mosaic law a man lies with a man as he lies with a woman both of them have done what is detestable they must be put to death their blood will be on their own heads now it's very interesting in the Mosaic law what makes makes a a crime a capital crime what what invokes the, the death penalty you might remember back from um, Genesis chapter 9 
um, uh, the, the death penalty is prescribed for murder because it's a defacing of the image of God. So uh, that's why that applies. So we can imagine that something similar is applying here is that rather than spreading the image of God in the world, these kinds of practices are defacing the image of God. It's like graffiti over God, if you like. And uh, that's why there's a capital crime. So that's Leviticus um, 18 and uh, 20. Uh, now, um, it's Mosaic law. It's Old Testament. We've got to take that into account. Uh, does this still carry through into the New Testament area? What difference does the death and resurrection of Jesus make to this particular piece of ethical instruction? Is it like the food laws? which pass away with Christ uh, or the sacrificial laws that are fulfilled in him well I think we have to say in this instance uh, given the connections we can make with Genesis 1 and 2 um, and the, the section of the book that it's contained in um, that these things will carry on through uh, the death penalty uh, the way the death penalty works in the New Testament community is quite interesting so this is the middle chapters of 1 Corinthians so when someone's caught in an incestuous relationship, which is one of the sins that's picked up here in Leviticus 18 um, you know, they're, they're called to repent and, and so forth but if they refuse to, then they're expelled from the community okay. so that's how that works out in the, in the New Testament You've got, we've got an example there of how that works out in the New Testament um, setting Matthew 19, I just mentioned again, uh, this is Jesus uh, drawing quite precise ethical implications from Genesis 1 and 2 um, on lifelong marriage, issue of divorce, which we'll come back to next session, um, implies uh, no polygamy. But the verses he quotes, just to remind you, emphasise in many ways the, 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 the male-female aspect of the pattern in Genesis 1 and 2. And a man and wife in sexual union, making one flesh. Okay, all those things are there. Uh, so we can say definitely that the male-female distinction is very important to Jesus. It strongly implies, strongly implies that no form of male-male uh, or female-female union um, would be would be right. Um, he'd be, if he were to speak explicitly on it, we can imagine that he would be. Uh, as strong about it as he is on the other things that he does speak explicitly about. Like um, divorce and adultery. Now Romans chapter 1, verses 24 to 27. Uh, let's have a quick look at those. Now this is, interestingly, this is not, still, again, not... Um, explicit instruction is description so, so Paul is describing so it's almost a, 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 the story of, of the way that mankind has, has gone in its rebellion against God you know, so as mankind has uh, rejected the truth and turned away from the, the glory of the creator to idols this then results in uh, certain uh, behaviour again that's what he's talking about in this, in, in this instance of verse 24 
Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way that men almost so abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Uh, and verse 27 is, is literally something like that. They abandoned the natural use of or, the, or natural sex with female and were inflamed in their desire for one another. Now, it's very interesting again to see how implicitly connected what Paul's saying is here to Genesis uh, 1 to 3. Uh, so as, as mankind turns away from the glory of God, the glory of the Creator, um, which is what happens in Genesis 3, of course, this is what happens. So the trajectory, initial trajectory was about recognising, respecting, multiplying uh, the glory of God. Uh, but as they turn away from that and seek their own glory in many ways, uh, this is the kind of re- resultant dysfunctional behaviour that comes from that. That seems to be the kind of trajectory of what Paul is talking about. Now, it's sometimes argued that what Paul is uh, talking about here is not all, um, not all homosexual behaviour. Okay, so remember, I was saying that this is the inner liberal is going to be telling us this. Uh, but, it's, but it's worth dealing with the arg- arguments. It's sometimes argued that uh, the, the kind of homosexual behaviour that Paul is talking about here is not, is not um, committed faithful, monogamous um, partnerships, homosexual partnerships, but things like homosexual prostitution or pederasty, which is uh, older men um, sexually abusing younger men, um, or indeed, some claim um, homosexual people, those of homo- uh, sorry, heterosexual, those of heterosexual orientation. Well, that's a difficult thing to define, isn't it? Um, going against their own nature in homosexual acts. So some try and work it. That's what some would claim. That's what Paul means by natural here. So they go against their own nature rather than against the created order. Um, and that then allows you to say, well, he wasn't speaking against these kind of committed, lifelong homosexual um, relationships. However, that's extre- it has to be said, that's extremely unlikely, because it's not as if in the, in the Greco-Roman world that, that long-term, stable homosexual relationships are unknown. They were quite common, in fact. Um, but Paul isn't, doesn't do anything to specifically exclude them in what he's saying here. It seems to me very, very general what Paul says here in terms of um, abandoning relationships with women and starting relationships with men. And uh, to suggest this against nature uh, would be against one's own nature, really, again, is going against the kind of flow of the passage, which which begins with the whole idea of recognising God as creator and um, turning away from that. So that's what defines nature here, if you like. And it's, it's turning against that rather than a sort of internal thing, sort of personal thing. So that seems extremely unlikely too. So all the, the ways to get around what Paul is saying here 
don't really work very well. There is another way around them which we will come to in a moment. So that's uh, Romans chapter 1. Uh, 1 Corinthians, so yes, that's turning away from the glory of God. Uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6. Does actually have uh, some direct exhortation in it this time. So it's not just descriptive now. Um, you can see that in chapter 6, verse 18. Uh, flee from sexual immorality. Um, this is what Paul is calling the Corinthians to. Um, the Corinthians, obviously, coming from a, a Gentile background, which has been f- lives full of idolatry and sexual immorality of various different sorts. Uh, now that they've been captured by Christ and brought into um, a new Christian community, they should be putting those things behind them and uh, fleeing from them. That's one of the big purposes of this letter. They're struggling to do that, and Paul wants to exhort them to do that. And he says, flee sexual immorality. And earlier in the chapter, you can get, we get something of... Um, a description or a list of what that would, sorts of things that would include. Well, so you can see that back in verse from verse nine. So neither sexually immoral, nor, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor sliders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, so that's so encompassed within that is the kind of sexual immorality that Paul is talking about. What what they should flee from. Now here's the danger that we can see some possible dangers of your inner Pharisee getting the better of you here because uh, we don't want to focus just on the sexual immorality here. There's all sorts of other things that can get you into trouble. Um, so it's about being greedy and drunk, slanderers, swindlers. Yeah, that's all a problem as well. So we do well not to forget that. Nonetheless, it does include these two terms, male prostitutes or homosexual offenders. The first of those uh, would be those who dress themselves up or present themselves in an effeminate way, which may have been male prostitutes, may have included male prostitutes. And then the homosexual offenders seems to be a very general term. It's Paul's way of translating those little phrases from Leviticus 18 and 20. So a very general sense of uh, men who lie with men um, as you would with women. Okay, so just a very general expression uh, for homosexual behaviour. Right, um, I think that's all I was going to say on those passages. Any quick questions? We're running out of time slightly on those passages. I think of all the issues we're going to face, I think it's pretty, pretty clear teaching across the scriptures against homosexuality. Pretty clear. Now, just a few things to bear in mind then in terms of uh, people and characters. These are, these are useful things to keep in mind as we kind of discuss how this is going to work. We've got, we've got to recognise the different kinds of people who are going to be affected by this issue and by these, this kind of teaching. And it will include those who are experiencing that same-sex uh, attraction, uh, including uh, Christians who experience uh, same-sex attraction. And we want to present the Gospel to people who experience uh, same-sex attraction 
and um, we've got to do more in the way I think of empathising with people in that kind of very difficult position um, so this book is a very good one so what some of you uh, will tell, tell the story of a number of people who have uh, um, been through that kind of experience you might also have come across Vaughan Roberts uh, interview which is in Evangelicals now back in October where he talks about his experiences of uh, same sex um, attraction uh, in a very open and amazing way so that's in Evangelicals now October 2012 which you can look up on the web so it's worth uh, thinking through uh, quite quite what that means so anything that we're going to say about this has to be able to speak to people within this kind of situation in a, in a compassionate and helpful way uh, we've got to think about the people who are affected by this um, other partners uh, one of the very sad things about the, the Roy Clements um, incident that happened a number of years ago now was the, the breakup in the, in the family that, that resulted from that got to think about people who are different uh, ages and stages uh, young people uh, older people um, young people it's, it's interesting uh, listening to, to our kids as they come back from school this is an issue that's coming up all the time so in their PHSE classes constantly talking about this issue and a very kind of pro homosexual agenda being, uh, being set in that context um, so they're having to so young people having to deal with this issue um, all the time in terms of rules uh, we do need to think about you know this, this is about what kind of actions are we talking about here we don't need to get too explicit about that it's, we generally know kind of what we're talking about I hope um, uh, but it is about sexual union it is about act, sexual acts that we're talking about within relationships so it's not about just about close friendships or whatever we're actually talking about uh, relationships that involve some sort of sexual um, activity uh, the whole um, possibility of celibacy or abstinence comes in here uh, where the behaviour is uh, innate or learned which is almost it seems to be almost impossible to tease out uh, the issues involved in that and then we've got the various kind of uh, rules as we've been looking at conventions in society and biblical conventions as we've been biblical instruction as we've been looking at and then finally thinking through the kind of situations and con- consequences of, of these actions uh, they're going to have community consequences are they the way uh, uh, so we see that very, and social consequences we see that very much in the, in the debate about gay marriage at the moment the way society works um, there are health issues as well uh, so people don't like talking about this but um, male homosexual activity does have a significant impact on life expectancy um, I, forget, I forget what the figure is but it's remarkably high to anyone? Yeah, something like 10 years I think on average life expectancy um, and the, but the main thing I want to emphasise here is that the, 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 bibli- the big consequence that the Bible is interested in, or, or God through the Bible is interested in, is the glorification of God. So what is going to, what behaviour is going to most glorify God? And the pattern for the, how that should happen is there for us in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And the seriousness of, of defacing that pattern 
is expressed in the rest of the, the rest of the scriptures. So how, from a Christian point of view, how could you then argue for uh, committed, faithful, homosexual partnerships in a positive way? So that Steve Chalk, you might have seen him in the news recently. Um, so about a year and a half ago, he was involved in the blessing of a, a same-sex uh, marriage. Uh, well, not marriage or civil partnership, it must have been. And he's recently written and made a video explaining why he's done that. Now, what are the kind of arguments that, that people use? So Steve Chalk uh, uses what you might call a cultural argument. He would say that the Greco-Roman world didn't know about loving, committed gay partnerships. Culture has changed, so the prohibition against these things needs to change as well, as they have done in other ethical areas. And he would quote um, in terms of uh, women, uh, slavery, and he doesn't say usury, but he could say usury. You know, the sort of issues like that which seems to, seems to, seems to have changed according to the culture. Uh, Rowan Williams has written extensively on this. He uses a slightly different argument, saying that Trinitarian love can be expressed within homosexual partnerships without uh, any need for procreation. Um, so it's a very kind of elaborate, fancy, almost unreadable um, exposition of uh, Trinitarian ethics. Um, I suppose that the, the, the big thing in all of these arguments is that love and tolerance is going to trump everything else. That's roughly how it works. And probably implicit in most of these arguments as well is that same-sex attraction is largely innate rather than learned. Uh, that's certainly the cultural assumption, isn't it? Uh, which is why um, any argument against homosexual practice is put alongside um, racism. So those are, the, those are the kinds of arguments that people might use. Um, <laughs> two minutes left. What do you think? And, but we don't want to just be strong about proclaiming the truth, as we were saying. We do want to be thinking hard about how we can be better at being genuinely loving towards those who experience that same-sex attraction. Any thoughts as we finish? Yes. So I think my I think that's right. So, like, uh, yeah. so, so, I think that's the testament. So, the, the testimony of the people who are in this book, for example, is that um, so sometimes change is possible, 
but often well, frequently it's very, very difficult and sometimes it doesn't prove to be possible. Um, I mean, in a way that, you know, is it, is it learned or is it innate is a bit of a red herring because either way it doesn't matter in a sense. It doesn't matter where it comes from if, if it's a problem. Um, although it, do, it might affect how you then address it. But it's often used in that argument for um, homosexual partnership, isn't it? You know, because it's innate, therefore it must be right. It must be somehow part of the way things are. Which at that point you're talking about people in a look at nature and we're saying there are elements of nature where we hold out that man nature affects the world it's excellent, but there are also very poor elements of nature. Yeah, exactly. And the fear of nature, from a Christian perspective, the fear of nature does not... That's right. It doesn't... It doesn't exactly, exactly. I'm, I'm still stuck with my problem of, of thinking why should I know you kind of mention it but you, this notion of an alternative pattern should be morally wrong yeah. as opposed to different yeah well it does well two things to say about that one is that that does seem to be what the scriptures say so um and say very strongly, so Leviticus 18 and 20 say it very strongly that the alternative patterns that were going on in the nations around um, God's people at the time uh, were morally wrong. So we're then going to work, and that seems to be substantiated then by the way that Paul talks about the same kinds of things in Romans chapter 1 and, uh, and 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 6. You know, these are things you, sh- you should flee from in 1 Corinthians um, these are things that are, that, are cons- that, are, that are serious consequences in bringing about the, the wrath of God that's the language that he uses in Romans chapter 1 I suppose we then have to do the hard work of, of, uh, of trying to work out why is that so now, why is it so bad um, and it, it comes back to uh, I think it comes back to God's glory and the character of God and the display of God. So in other words, if, if something in creation is designed to display God's glory in a particular way, but you then change it, then that's, um, that is a, instead of spreading the truth about God's glory, it's now spreading um, a slander about God's glory. I think that's it's a defacing of the image of God. Um, if I as a human being created with the things that human beings normally have, two arms and two legs and healthy and all the rest of it, displays the glory of the Creator. Yeah. Because that's how we're made. But there's all sorts of people who have a little bit messing or not working properly and all the rest of it, and that might be a problem. It might not be a problem. Yeah. And I can't quite work out why that's not the same category. Um, well, I suppose I think even if we can't quite work out, we know that it's true because we're told that it's true. So in that sense, there's no, um, there's no, de- 
Yeah, so we don't, we, because we're told explicitly in the scriptures that on, in this particular instance, if there's a distortion in this particular way, so homosexual uh, behaviour, for example, then it is very serious. So we're explicitly told that. Um, do we need to fully understand why? We can sort of see why, but do we need to fully understand why? Now that, that instruction is given for our benefit so that we can see that very clearly that that is not right. Well, I, don't, I would argue in that case that it's, it's embedded in a whole load of things that are that aren't so clear. So, yes, I certainly can't make a case from the Bible that Yeah, well, I, I clearly don't want to pick and choose. The question with Leviticus is, you know, what difference does the, the change in context from when Leviticus was given to today, what difference does that make? You've got to think that through. But each instance, every, every instance of something that happens is instructed about in, in Leviticus. Yeah, but I'm picking and choosing for a reason. I mean, so it's not yeah. like Exactly. Picking and choosing for a reason is what I'm wanting. Yeah, exactly, that's right. So we, pick and we, we think about two, two things. The main thing, of course, is the difference the death and resurrection of Jesus made, makes. Okay, that's, the, that's the main situational change between now and back then. So that's obviously going to affect all the sacrificial laws. It's going to affect um, the cultural boundary laws, which include the food laws and various other related laws to that. Um, so I think that helps us to understand uh, those things. Now what, what about other cultural changes? I mean it was, yeah, I mean, the ancient Near East was a, a very different place in many ways to uh, culture to today. Nonetheless, you know, male and female doesn't, hasn't changed. God hasn't changed. It's hard to see why those things don't change across the different contexts. And if we're worried about that, we've got the confirmation in the New Testament that those things follow through. Uh, both from Jesus' teaching, so they follow through into uh, the ethics of divorce, remarriage, and from Paul's teaching too, they follow through in, into this very issue, you know, the issue of um, homosexual behaviour in both Rome and does that help at all? Mm. Because it's not simply that, well, actually, I believe the Bible says this, because I'm 
Well, I think we can say more than that, which is why we spent so much time in Genesis 1 and 2. You know, the, 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 the positive, the way marriage is supposed to work, the male-female partnership part of it seems to be very important, it seems to be quite central to the way marriage is supposed to work. We haven't run down that, that particular. We haven't sort of gone down that particular path in great detail. Um, but again, with that one, you've got you've got you've got New Testament teaching on it, which is based on Genesis. So you don't just have to rely on Genesis on its own. You know, the, the scriptures have have the, the, the New Testament controls uh, to help us steer through those steer through those issues. Um, yeah, so I think, yeah, I think the, the material is there. You know, the, the, uh, as Paul himself claims, the scriptures are sufficient to address these issues. There's enough material there to kind of work, work it out. Um, and it's not just it's not just a, a blunt obedience, but it's all it's always explained. You know, the reason behind it is explained. especially in Jesus himself you know, so he, he has come to call sinners so he goes and eats with sinners and he has a particular concern to reach out to them with compassion yeah. which includes all good, well let me pray because we've uh, run over which I'm sorry for uh, Heavenly Father, we do want to finish on that very point uh, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and uh, we want to remember that first and foremost there's no sense that we can uh, be, feel ourselves holier than now on any of these issues uh, we just want to thank you for your great and wonderful mercy and we, uh, we thank you that, that extends far and wide across every people and tribe and background and situation 
Help us to remember that, Lord, and to have a similar compassion to that of the Lord Jesus as we go about um, our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Good, I think we are back in three weeks' time. Is that correct? I think. Oh, right. Um, well, we're still going to go. Um, I wrote back and said, uh, yes, I am uh, I am a Christian and we would disagree on many things, uh, but we would still like to come. Now, how that's going to work out, I don't know. So you could pray for us as we talk with them when we're there.